0: Interestingly enough, most people will give you grace and most people would be more than happy to go ahead and extend that grace to you and forgive you and kind of move forward in the relationship. But if you don't do it, you've lost. If you're unwilling to say, I am sorry, or if you're, you know, we can all, we, us old guys can talk about our wives. How many times have you made a mistake and said, but no one full well that, you know, as soon as the butt comes out of your mouth, you know, it's run and you got to start all the way up begin. So, so we're back to the integrity, we're back to the trust, and I am sorry. And I think the other, the other thing that goes along with that is will you help me? Will you help me get better? Will you help me recognize this? Will you be willing to share that with me even though it's uncomfortable? Will you be willing to tell me when I'm stepping across the line? Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann.
1: Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this podcast, this series, go to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experienced with an E-D, so if me and my fellow Marines that don't do so well spelling, myexperiencedrealtor.com. Click on podcast, go down you can download this episode and other episodes on Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, iTunes. You can even hit the click "Read More" on fabulous guests like I have today, Buddy Peterson. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing so good. How are you, man? i I I couldn't be better, and which is really really a funny thing to say considering the last 12 months, right? Between you know pandemics, rioting, protesting term turmoil and elections, hurricanes, deep freeze, d- deep freeze. So, so yeah, I mean, it, I almost, I almost feel like, you know, what's next? April Fool's April. It is April Fool's day. I've got it. You're a scandalous character. So I've got to watch out for you today. I'm, That's right. I'm That's sure right. you've already got pre-planned a couple of traps. You're going to let me try to slide into. So since it is April Fool's, my father-in-law says, I got to start every one of these off with a joke. So you ready for my joke? I'm ready. Okay. Did you hear about the fight in the kitchen? No. A fish got battered. Wah, wah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I didn't say they were going to be good jokes, <laughs> right? I'm not going to make it in comedy if this podcast just decides to shit the bed one day. But, you know, hey, here we are. So, So let's talk about you. What do you do? So... I, I tell everyone I am
0: a janitor for a very large frac company. <laughs> Fortunately, I am the COO of FTS International, which is a big oil field services fracturing company. Now, but you, by and large,
1: I mean, I'm really the janitor. You're, you're, now, is that is it? are y'all still, y'all went public at one time? Are y'all we're still public? S- we're still public. Still public. So basically, you're cleaning up the messes of a a publicly traded company. Right, which isn't too far from being a Marine, right? No, no. I mean, trust me, I I saw a funny meme the other day of a bunch of Lance Corporals out picking up trash. And it says, says, being a Lance Corporal, picking up everybody's shit since 1775. So, yeah. And speaking of Marines, we have a common mutual friend, how we met each other. Mr. Jamie Peace. What do we ever? We do. God, he's the prettiest human you've ever seen, mm-hmm. right? He is beautiful. Yeah, gotta love his hair, his hair, and he's lethal. And what pisses me off is he gets in shape by breathing.
0: You know, don't don't kid yourself. I mean, you see him sling the kettlebell around.
1: He's working out. Is he? And okay. the older
0: he gets, you know, he's got to work more and more. Soon he'll be old and full. Oh,
1: oh, oh, wait till he hits that half century mark that's mm-hmm. like getting ready to come up on me. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're a young strapping 30 year old. I mean, you don't have too much life experience or anything, do you? No, no, no. So, so Jamie, we know through, you know, him, he used to work for you at FTS and then moved on, went to another company and so forth. And having Jamie work for you, what was that like?
0: Well, I I think most of your other listeners probably heard the story. I mean, just kind of a quick recap. Yeah. Jamie actually was frustrated to the point that he couldn't stand it anymore, and he went out and procured a new boss. I happen to be the guy. <laughs> so if you take it from that context, the, the beautiful part about Jamie is he's got beautiful hair. He is loud. He's obnoxious. <laughs> he is a colossal pain in the ass. Like, like. Like, like colossal, mega colossal, like titan of pain in the ass. So, so here's the beautiful part about him: the the challenge with Jamie is he'll do anything once, most of the time twice. He thinks so far ahead, so far into the future. You sometimes have to rein him back. But as a team, it it was fantastic. I, I mean, there there was probably nothing. Those three years that we spent together, and literally we spent sixteen—you know—somewhere between twelve and sixteen hours every day because we were traveling all over trying to rebuild the organization. Some of the sweetest times in my life. I mean, when he left, which we knew was a great opportunity for him to go ahead and watch him develop and grow and move on. We, we both sat in the conference room. I had to give a town hall talk to 2,000 employees. At the end of those 2,000 employees, I personally thanked Jamie. We both broke into tears. I cried like a baby. I sobbed. And uh, we finally had a lady that sat in the front row. And she's uh, works in the camp. No, actually, she works in the HEC department. Finally, she leaned over and she said, hey, Peterson, get it together. Ooh. So, yeah, it, it was very, it was
1: so much fun. It so there must be fun. something about Marines, especially, you know, former recon Marsoc Marines that you decided to replace them with another fellow Marsoc Marine. I did. So
0: interestingly enough, I'm going to go back and tell another story. I, I spent a bunch of time working for Halliburton and the very, my, my favorite employee, not because he was fun or handsome or had great hair, but the skill set that he brought was because he was a Marine or so I thought. I had several others, you know, all kinds of military people through the last 30 years of my career, but Marines have always stood out for a couple of different reasons. And when I first met Jamie and spent some time with Jamie, I asked him the question. I said, so what what is it exactly about the Marine Corps that that makes you guys fit so well into what we do? And he said, well, next time you go to the baseball game, watch him bring the flag in. I thought, what? He said, yeah, just watch him. And so as you watch the Honor Guard come in, there's really no question ever about who the Marine is. You, you may wonder whose BDUs that someone else is wearing, but when you see the Marine, you, you know. And so it's that ability and the crystallization of who they are which makes them such a great employee. So my favorite employee was Dennis Ronk, and I said that out loud publicly. This is, <laughs> this is 25 years ago, Dennis, so if you hear this some weird way, know that it's true. And from that moment forward, every opportunity that I had to hire a Marine, I would. Jamie introduced me to the Honors Foundation. And the Honors Foundation is kind of, to to kind of bring it all full circle, it is a special operators opportunity, kind of a training center, plugged back into civilian life. And through the Honors Foundation and through several cadres, we managed to hire, I think, five or six different people. And over the course of those five or six different people, one of them replaced Jamie. I've got two others that are currently working in the field today, and we've had a couple others kind of cycle in. So it's Man. a fantastic organization.
1: Well, and I, and I tell you as a, you know, as a United States veteran, especially being a United States Marine, there's nothing that warms my heart than when people help military, especially Marines, because like you said, you know, we're, we're probably the best at what we do, but we're also the biggest pain in the ass there's no doubt about that my wife and business partner will attest to that very easily but in the you know in the military you 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 find a sense of purpose right and then when you leave the military there's you, you don't know what the purpose is and especially with marines because like the army actually has in their boot camp more focus on combat fighting than the marine corps does in boot camp is The majority of our boot camp is branding and culture and discipline. We spend, now things, now I've, I mean, I enlisted in 1991, so it's been a minute. (laughs) So things may be a little bit different, but to my recollection is we spent, as far as the field goes, we spent one week learning how to shoot the rifle, one week demonstrating that, and then two weeks out in the field, that was that was about as far as that. You know, then afterwards you would go to Marine Combat training after boot camp to get more because sure, every Marine's sure. rifle and so forth. But we we were focused on learning branding, where being a Marine wasn't about what you're doing today and future Marines. It was about honoring the Marines that came before you. And so when you carry that heavy sense of purpose and you transition into the civilian world, I think it's actually harder for Marines than it is the other branches. And then on top of that, take it to the next level. When you come from a community, and this actually goes through all the different branches, the special operations community, you know, whether you're recon, MARSOC, Navy SEAL, PJ, ODA, Delta Force, whichever SEAL teams, you're in even more specialized where your purpose is more than just the military. It is about the teams and the focus and everything else. Then when you leave the military, it is just really, really hard to make that transition. And so when you have leaders like yourself that, bring us in and then cultivate us to find our new sense of purpose out here. Me, I want to thank you because that that warms my heart when I see that because I think we live in a world where because of media and social media and nobody tells the stories about what we did good. They talk about, oh, this person with PTSD and, oh, woe is this person and blah, 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 where people are hearing all these negative stories where they're, they're – there's a large part of the community that's somewhat afraid of us. And I'm like, you don't have to be afraid of us, right? We're, we're actually okay. Just like you have a bad doctor, you have a bad, whatever. Sure. There's going to be a bad person that was in the military and went and did something. However, what all the great things that we've done when we got out is we were willing to do violence on your behalf. So you could have everything that you have and trust us when we get done you know, being downrange and and distributing all that violence, we really don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> it gets a little old after a while. Yeah, and so sure. we get back and then we have great leaders like you. So, but I went down that path a lot longer than once. So, so, you being the CEO of a publicly traded company, how, you got there real easy, right? Oh, yeah. I was just I mean, a snap my fingers and I was there. <laughs> so, where did your journey begin? Where'd you grow up? T- take us through how you got to where you are today. Wow.
0: Wow, that's a long time ago. I mean, it's it's <laughs> been more than one decade or, or maybe a hot minute. I I grew up in northwest New Mexico in an oilfield town, Farmington, New Mexico, the San Juan Basin. My my dad was a bivocational pastor. My mom was a school teacher. And so you can imagine all of the problems that ensued because of that. So what they say about preachers' kids is absolutely true. And I prove it. <laughs> You know, the the beautiful part about growing up in the San Juan Basin, it, it exposes you to a couple of different things. One, oil and gas, and the second, oil and gas, and the third is oil and gas. So really, you don't have much of a choice but to really fully understand what oil and gas or oil and gas services, maybe mining a little bit, but by and large, that's really what you're destined, That that's that's kind of what you're forced into. Of course, I graduated forever ago, um, didn't really know what I wanted to do, left, spent a 60-day Kind of Lewis and Clark trek to Alaska, bounced around a little bit, worked construction, and then I went to work on a drilling rig. And, you know, kind of been interesting for, for those of you in Fort Worth and those of you in oil and gas sector, everybody knows who Key Energy Services is because they were really the first ones to start the roll up of service companies. And the drilling rig that I worked for, the company that I worked for was Bob Andy's and Four Corners Drilling. And Bob was the first company that Key Energy rolled up. And so if you think back, you know, that's been about 30 years ago. And so from that, that moment forward, I began to really understand that I didn't want to work with my back my whole life, but I also understood that people really made the difference. And I had a really good mentor, was a younger guy than I was. And he said, look, you know, a guy like you should probably go back to school. And that was it. That was a catapult. I went back to school, finished a degree at New Mexico state, was fortunate enough to graduate in December, went to work at Halliburton in January. Interestingly enough, they hired me back in Farmington. My boss told me, oh, don't worry, you'll only be here about 18 months. And look, H- Halliburton did more for me than, uh, you know, I've got, I've got nothing but huge respect to talk about Halliburton. They promoted me way 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 beyond where I was. You know, if you think about the Peter Principle, I'm living proof of that Peter Principle most of the time.
1: Talk about the Peter Principle.
0: Well, the Peter Principle says that, look, we, we promote you two steps above really what you're competent to do. And, and we make jokes about it. I think the military talks about it a lot. And I think what happens inside organizations is we Peter principle people, we hire them, we, we promote them beyond their current capacity, and then we either let them flounder and don't support that and don't stretch that out of them, and then we usually lose them. But every once in a while, you can kind of flop your wings and flounder and find some mentors and really kind of get your feet underneath you. And then next thing you know, the Peter principle that you thought you were at, you've actually built competencies to make it. And I spent 17 glorious years with Halliburton. They promoted me multiple places, lots of product lines. I got to work in the Rockies. And then they transferred me to Oklahoma City, which really kind of where the education began. And part, yeah. of, part of Oklahoma City is, you know, Western Oklahoma at that time, and this was right after um, 9-11. And Western Oklahoma was the deepest and the hottest of, of all places that we worked. It was, you know, pressures upwards of 20,000 pounds. Pretty scary And it was kind of bragging rights to say, you know, who's who inside the oil field had been through Western Oklahoma and kind of a pivotal time in my life. I I was an engineer, an engineering manager, had a lot of operational experience. I came to Oklahoma City to be, to, to manage the sales account for a little company. Chesapeake was the name of the company. It was very small at the time. And I had an opportunity to move to Western Oklahoma to become the first district manager over the course of about a decade. And I can remember driving home. We lived in Edmond, Oklahoma, and I had a, I I had adopted my youngest daughter and I had two other kids on the ground at the time. And I strolled in the house and I told Wendy, I said, you know, that they've, they've asked me to be the district manager in Western Oklahoma. And she said, well, what do you think about that? I thought, well, one, I don't know that I'm qualified Two. I don't know that I want to give up what I've got here because this is such a fantastic job. A couple hours later, we got done with dinner and kind of put the kids up, did the bath thing and got ready. And she finally leaned over at me and she said, do you know what the definition of selfishness is? I was like, oh boy. And she said, it's when someone believes that you can do it and you choose not to do it because you're worried about failure. And you're worried about not wanting to disappoint someone else or not wanting to change the lifestyle that you have. And she said, don't be selfish, take the job. Well, little did I know what was going to transpire after that. I took the job in Western Oklahoma. And from that operational piece moving forward, it, it still continued. You know, not, not only was I an engineer, not a very good engineer, not only was I a sales guy, not a very good sales guy, not only was I an operational guy, but the sum of the three and the ability to recognize talented people, I, I, I continue to have success. I left Halliburton in 2007. I got duped away by some private equity guys to go run a small company. Through that small company, I, I, I learned a lot about what it was like to not have a big company, big support staff. And we scratched and, and struggled, worked in the Northeast, and we were successful in um, turning that company around and selling it. And then we decided we'd uh, try it on our own. And that was a, another interesting experience of getting roughed up and not really understanding what relationships look like and private equity and raising money and losing money. And um, lo and behold, so I, I guess through that entire time, you know, the ups and downs and getting roughed up and getting skinned up and getting road rash and your heart broke and tears and blood <clears throat> and sweat. I got a call from Jamie Peace one afternoon in July and said, hey, you want to go to lunch? Somebody told me who you were and that you could help. And would you like to go to lunch? So that, that was it. <laughs> From that moment forward, here I am.
1: Did, did you know what you were getting yourself into when he took you to lunch? No, I had no idea.
0: <laughs> you, you know, when, when people tell you how bad things are. Yeah. And and this is really no slight to the former FTS management and the, the former FTS team. But our, our business, I think all business, we... we we get complacent and we begin to, I, I liken it to every time, if you don't move every couple of years, you know, the time that you have to move, you realize where did all of this stuff come from? And it's just accumulation over time. Same thing with any kind of business. You get complacent, you add, you know, you you add this set of software and, and lo and behold, you've got baggage associated with the software. Or you, you add a process here and that process is no longer valid, but you still do it anyway because it's part of what you were. And that's kind of the way, you know, FTS was at the time. There were just a lot of processes, a lot of things, and, and there, were, there were lots of things that were, people were perfectly equipped for a world that didn't exist anymore. And when you sit across the table at lunch and you're eating fajitas and kind of horsing around trying to, inter, you know, trying to meet someone, and they tell you about these things, you really don't have any concept. But boy, did we find out quick, fast, and in a hurry. And then
1: from there, it was magic. Well,
0: yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's always
1: magic. Um, so, yeah, let, let, yeah, let's, let's. I mean, you, you just came in and waved a magic wand and oh, made yeah, it man. all go away, right? Preston. <laughs> <down>. Perfect. Perfection. <laughs> yeah. If if you, if you think about the
0: task that was at hand, and this is kind of contextualize this. We had about $1.2 billion worth of debt on a company that had just lost about 75 or 80% of their revenue. mm. We had 4,000 plus employees. And this was, you know, a- a- after the Saudis did what they talked about doing in the Q4 of 14, right after Thanksgiving. And kind of this is in the spring, really in the summertime of 2015, when things really, really started to get rough. And that's what we were faced with. And um, quite interestingly enough, Begrudgingly, Jamie introduced me to one of the chairmen on the board. Begrudgingly, we kind of worked our way through, and it was r- really weird and awkward in terms of trying to get hired and moving in. We, we got hired. The board decided they needed an an entire change, an entire flushing or change of leadership. And lo and behold, on a, you know, kind of on a Thursday morning, about September the eighth, I think, we wound up with here's a clean slate. If you had to start over with zero, what would you do? And that's what we did. So we completely broke it completely apart and built it from that point forward. And we fought and scrapped and struggled our way through. We were fortunate enough to IPO. We, we had a small window and we IPO'd. We paid back a tremendous amount of debt. Um, we got the IPO done. Um, and then, lo and behold, guess what else happened? Here we sit today. So um, as corona happened and as the market began to soften, we realized that we were still upside down from a debt perspective, even though we, we paid back about $600 million. And, and uh, we found ourselves in that in that spot that there really wasn't a way to go and so we went through a restructuring and we restructured last November and we came out and here we are we're, we're debt free today in a market that's a little bit soft a super super
1: bright future and we're looking forward so one of one of the common myths that i hear from i think folks have a hard time understanding High level folks, C suite, let's call them C suite folks, you know, your CEOs, CFOs, your COOs, your CSOs, the CMOs, the C-ever, CTO, right? CTO. CTO. CAO.
0: CAO. I think we got them. That's the full game. Yeah. We got vegetable we got, soup.
1: We got the vegetable soup or people that are been successful entrepreneurs, right? Built companies. You kind of alluded to going from, you know, big company, small company, owning a company. That when you're in these positions, You have no insecurities. You have no fear, and you're never scared. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't have said that better myself. (laughs) Yes, yes. How much sleep have
0: you lost? Really, how much have I had? Is probably a better question. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about, yeah, I think it's super interesting when people talk about, you know, the the C suite folks and and what they really do or what they really don't do. And from an emotional perspective, you know, I I got to tell you. Sometimes the gravity of the people that look to you almost is unbearable B- because you, you, you can kind of forecast into the future what might happen. And, and it's kind of the might or could or possibilities that, that really pulls at your heartstrings because you know that you've got 400 employees that are tapping their wives or tapping their little kids on the head when they leave at two o'clock in the morning, kissing their wife goodbye, knowing they're going to be gone for 14 days. And you're responsible for that. Now, not really, but that's how you feel. And so I, th- I think what we've discovered, or at least in my career, and look, it's been lots of tears, lots of lost sleep, lots of road rash, is that if we allow fear to really um, in- impact our mind, we begin to make decisions based on fear. And And then all of a sudden, you're making decisions based on what might be or what you're afraid of instead of really the reality, what's in front of you. And, and sometimes it's the employer-employee fear scenario, and, and here's a perfect example. If if you think you understand what your boss really wants, and, and whatever it is, let's say he wants you to make, he wants you to take a $100 bill and convert that into $120. He wants you to make that amount of interest on that. Well, if you're afraid, if you come at it from a perspective of fear, what you'll do is you'll say, what would he do to get to that? Instead of thinking about it, what can I do? What are the skills and gifts and talents that I have to go ahead and make that money for him? And, and I think that the easy way to think about it is if you don't do what you're built to do, and you try to play the short ball or try to play it safe, you wind up in 90 days, in, instead of $120, you've made 117 When if you'd have done it yourself or if you've done it outside of fear, you've been able to make 150 or $175 or, or, or whatever the number is. And that, that's kind of a poor illustration that's kind of one of the things that we've discovered or I've discovered in my career. If I get to thinking about what could happen or I get to thinking about what someone else wants me to do, I begin to shrink back of who I am and what I am. And then I'm making decisions that are short or that are middle of the road and, and they they don't maximize. They don't maximize that. They don't honor the people that you have working for you. They don't honor the organization that you're trying to support. And really all they do is continue. You, you you just
1: continue to shrink. Okay. So here's a bigger question is, how do you, as a leader, and what you've learned, community, what, what kind of tools do you utilize to get your subordinates to understand what you just said? Like, hey, don't do me, do you. What, what are some of the steps you take there? So, so there, there's been about three things that we've kind of worked
0: through in the last, I don't know, several years. Par- partially, Jamie. I, I mean, a couple of those, you know, kind of the catchphrase, don't be afraid to break a few eggs. And that really came from my boss, the CEO, Mike Doss. And, you know, I, I think he coined the phrase because he probably read it on the back of a napkin somewhere or a fortune cookie. And, and I think he, he used it and he means it and he loved it. But when you really internalize that, that it's okay to break a few eggs, it, it begins to give you a little more confidence into who you are and what you are. So, so we say that a lot around our organization. It's okay to break a few eggs. The second piece is let's understand what our biases are. Let's talk about those biases. And sometimes that bias, you know, it, it it shows up as fear. Sometimes it shows up as something else. But if you're willing and open to talk about it, I've got it written up on my board. So every meeting we get done and talk about one situation and we say, so which 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 way are we biased? Are we biased towards it or against it? Are we biased because I don't like the way you look? I don't like the cut of your jib. I don't like him. I don't like her. I don't like this. And, and we've talked about the bias piece. And then the third piece is, look, recognize what fear is. And, and you can use any cliche you want, you know, false expectations appearing real or, or anything else along that. But push through that. Push through whatever weird feeling you have, knowing that you're not going to hurt anybody, that it's not immoral or illegal, and it's the right thing to do for the company. It's the right thing to do for the employees. Push on. Soldier on.
1: Yeah, I can remember when when I went through the police academy for PD, and, and again, this was a very long period time ago I think this is now twenty twenty four years ago is what it was and I'll never forget is we're we're going to the academy and you know you're learning all the different laws what to do how to do all that but one of the things but if you ask me during that six months what do you remember out of that there's a lot I wouldn't remember but the one thing I do remember is when One of the instructors got up in front of the class and said, look, you're not always going to make the right decisions. You're human. Things are going to happen. And you're not always going to be given a lot of time to make those decisions. I mean, I've literally had to make life and death decisions and I had less than two seconds. Now think about that. 1,001, 1,002. Just just that quick life and death decisions. And by the way, I was no longer in the military where my job was. Look, I, I was clear on what my job was in the military. Right? If, you, if, you, you, if the president sends in the Marines, whether it's in combat, whether it's off of a Mew, whether it's whatever, mm-hmm. I have one job and one job only. And the performance of that job means making sure my buddy doesn't get dead or hurt, then making sure I don't get dead or hurt because our focus is to go kill the bad guy. And that's it. There's no ambiguity to it or anything else. But now in the police department, lots of ambiguity. As a matter of fact, you have to process a complex situation that has more complexity than you're even seeing with your own eyes, hearing, smelling, all the five senses, taste, smell, all that. Then, on top of that, two seconds, 1,001, 1,002, to make an effective decision that people are going to spend Days, weeks, months, even years, breaking down and judging all the actions you took based on that two seconds. So how do you teach someone to take all that in? And here's what they did. They simplified it. At the end of the day, whatever decision you make, just make sure that decision is you would be okay if someone stuck a microphone and a camera in your face on the nightly news and your response did not embarrass you, your kids, your spouse, your parents, your family, your friends, or your community. That right or wrong in the decision that you make, just make sure that whatever you do doesn't embarrass them. And I thought, man, that's a really, when you bring it all in, it's powerful. It it is. Because as you just go, at the end of the day, I did the best, I did the best I could. I made decisions in the PD that caused me some disciplinary actions Certainly. even having time off without pay but the reason I never got fired and i remember one i remember one particular situation where i didn't believe what i was doing was wrong i didn't have enough experience to have sound judgment <laughs> in the decision that fair, i made fair. so the investigation goes on and and i end up in the chief's office and he's got to decide how much discipline and it had even been recommended that i get fired this particular situation and at the end of it he said so if you could go back and do that all over again would you have done it differently and I looked at the chief and I said well that depends chief and he looks and he goes the hell do you mean by that and I said if I had to go back to that situation are you talking about going back in the same situation I was in not knowing what I know now or going back into the situation knowing what what I know now and he goes not knowing what you know now, I said, I would have made the exact same decision. And he looked at me and he kind of laughed and he goes, you know, sometimes it's okay to tell the chief what he wants to hear. <laughs> but he goes, but you didn't lie through the whole investigation. You gave accurate details. You did everything you were supposed to do. And then even when I sit here in my office and I'm giving you an out, which I wouldn't have judged you for it, you still hold true to your integrity. And I said, knowing what I know now, yeah, I would have made a much different decision. And it went from, I tell you what, if you don't arbitrate it, because civil service, we could arbitrate sure, I mean, sure. Simon, he goes, I'll give you one day off without that pay. And I was like, you want me to sign that shit in blood? I'll sign that right now. Yes. You please, know, please. I just said, I said, absolutely. Can I make a request? He goes, you're not really in a position to be making requests. And I says, no, it, is it possible that I could get my day off in lieu of my regular days off? And he goes, why? And I was like, well. <laughs> I don't want to go sulking in, 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 you know, in one day. I want to go spend three days and maybe go somewhere and have a trip and and recollect and think about what I reflection. did. And he looked at me and he said, "You are full of shit," but I will make sh- I will make sure that happens. So that goes back to what you're talking about, right? Totally, is, totally. Is you know, don't be afraid to break those eggs. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Mistakes are going to happen, right? I, I think one one piece that you
0: said um, that resonates so well. It, it's it's the notion of the integrity piece. And I, and I think sometimes in the world we live in today, we we get that backwards. I mean, w- when you think about integrity, it's it's being the same all the time. And so many times we we live in a world where we're chameleons. We're we're one way one you know at, in one set of circumstances, one group, one one set of friends. And you see, especially with your kids, your kids are probably way younger than mine. But you know, my, mine are kind of on the other end, twenty. Well, we I've, could break a whole episode down about that. <laughs> uh, so I, how many do you have? Just one. I've got four. Yeah. 22. You win. 20, 19, and 18. Yeah, you win. But anyway, we, we <laughs> can do that later. <laughs> Just yeah. but, but back to the question about integrity, m- making sure that what you continue to do, you're consistent across all things. And I think going back to that fear-based management or fear-based leadership or some of the things that we struggle with all the time is when you're inconsistent in the way you operate or when you're inconsistent in what you say or what you do creates a gigantic gap. And I think a lot of the leaders that we see today, a lot of the people, a lot of our friends struggle with that because again, it's, it's kind of a fear-based thing. They want to fit in. That they're, they're afraid of what someone else might think in an outside of a circle. And the challenge is for those of us that are old and a little bit gray-headed is to recognize and realize and make sure that the people under under us or working with us or side by side to understand that it's okay to stay firm in what you believe today, tomorrow, the next day, the following day. And and there will be some consequences for that, maybe a day off without pay. But there's also going to be the people in the next generation that look to you and look at them and will recognize that w- that will develop a culture or a process or a thing that goes long beyond
1: what we currently do today. You know, it's funny about that situation too is, Fourteen years later, almost to the date of when I got that discipline, the chief of police reached out. I was a sergeant at the time and reached out, said, "Hey, I want to talk to you." Calls me in the office. And in Fort Worth PD, you apply for all the different positions. Sure, right. Sure. There's only two positions you don't apply for: supervisor of internal affairs, supervisor of special investigations. Because special investigations does all the public corruption, actually criminal investigations. Internal Affairs actually does the administrative portion of it. So, contrary to what a lot, I mean, different departments run things different ways and all that. So, a lot of movies have made Internal Affairs out. He said, I want you to run Internal Affairs. And I'm just, I remember looking around. (laughs) Does anybody hear that? And he goes, and he says, what are you doing? I said, well, I was looking for the closet in your office. And he goes, why? And I said, well, I'm waiting for Ashton Kutcher to jump out and say you're punked. That's right. I was like, did you lose a bet or something? He said, You're an unorthodox thinker, but you're a critical problem solver. And at the time, the department had shifted from sergeants being the investigators and a lieutenant being the supervisor to now the sergeant was going to be a supervisor and they were going to make detectives the investigators. There is a – it's a personnel reorg, all that. They're trying to figure out how it works. And he goes, and I need somebody who sees the world different. And he goes, you see the world different. You know, he knows that I – I'm to, he he knew, maybe not knew me, but he he was surrounded by enough people that said, if you want to solve complex problems, that is like outside the box thinking, yeah. you need to call Span. But they were like, it's like having a tiger by the tail, though. Careful what you wish for. That's right. You're going to get results, but it's going to come in the fashion of sometimes it's like a bull in a china cabinet. And I'm not going to say that my time in eternal affairs and making that transition and doing the things that I always did at right or whatnot, but... But I I, I had absolutely the focus of the integrity of the 13th largest police department in the United States, forward of mind. Now, does that mean people agree with what I did? No. Of course not. Does it mean they, they disagreed? Does that mean there was all these things that came with it? But like you said, and when you and I had this conversation about, you know, fear-based decisions a couple months ago, you know, I, I really resonated with that because I, I did not, I, I was like, look. If there's anything I've learned in life, you know, post PD and now, you know, where we are, is there are three rules I have to live by. And you and I've discussed these. The first rule is don't be in the convincing business. Number one, I don't have the time and energy to convince somebody, nor do I have the time and energy to be convinced myself. And in all actuality, I don't think anybody really has that magical power that can they influence and get people like, look at a Tony Robbins thing, right? People go and they're all pumped up. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go sell a million. And then they leave and they go back to what they're doing. Right. So there's no magical wand there. So don't be in a convincing business. Second thing is don't care what other people think of you, right? The people that love and care about you, right? And then you got a lot of people out there that maybe don't love, maybe don't care about you, maybe don't like you. Then you got the other people out there that Love you, but really don't like you. <laughs> and, but I, I, I learned through many years of pain that someone else's opinion of me is, is really none of my business. And why? Because I have no control over that. If I can't control you to change your mind by not having the power to convince you, then I definitely don't have the power to make you have a certain opinion of me. And then the third, what I learned as I transitioned out of the military and a PD into the business world and, and actually, yes, lost millions. There's nothing worse than when your own net worth gets reduced by millions and you're holding a bag for millions, right? That'll scare the living shit out of you. But I'll also learn my time's not free. Time is a valuable commodity. You can't buy more of, you can't get a refund on it once spent, but reputation cannot be bought with money, but only be built with time. But you can ruin it in a matter of seconds and over a single dollar. Great line.
0: Yeah. Great line. Yeah, I I think the lesson, and, and if we can all catch this, may, maybe the most poignant thing out of anything that's ever been said is the fact that when when you think about the problem-solving techniques or all the things that you are, that we are, that all the people listening have all these unique skills and gifts and talents, the truth really is, is you got the job, you got the role because of your integrity. Yeah. It wasn't anything else. Yeah. Now, it all of, my all, good looks—I right, promise you of, that. All, all of those <laughs> other accoutrements, all the other things, all the other—all all of that is all lipstick and rouge. At yeah. the end of it all, it's just about integrity. Yeah. When the lights go down, the curtains fade, the smoke clears. It's just you.
1: And 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 you said something is be true to you, right? Do you? And 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 I have that conversation so much with my twenty-year-old daughter. She's trying to figure out life and. And, and I make a lot of jokes, but you know, if she was sitting here today, I would say, listen, don't you want, don't want you to mistake anything. I am incredibly proud of you. I'm not proud of the decisions you're making at this point in your life because, but you're going to have to make those decisions. You're 20 and you're going to have to live with the consequences and benefits of all decisions that you make. And you know what? I, really, it is good to go out there and learn through some painful episodes. And, and, and I think that I, I tell people, it's like, look, when you get me you know what you're getting. You don't have to worry about it because if you haven't figured it out by the look on my face, I got no problems telling you. This is what I am good at. This is what I'm not good at. I mean, building building the real estate team that I have today with Sotheby's was built based on everybody works in a role that that's what they're good at. They don't do any of the things that they don't want to do. So we've compartmentalized to build the team where Lynn only does this. Now, everybody knows each other's job. So anybody could step into that role if need be. But Lynn only does what Lynn wants to do. And which leaves a gap. So part of that gap is Michelle takes up part of that gap because that's what she likes to do. But she doesn't really want to do what Lynn does. And then there's another gap of which Laura does. Which Michelle could do that, but she really doesn't want to do that. And Laura's fine doing it because she doesn't want to do Lynn or... or or Michelle's job. And then me, I really don't want to do anything that they want to do that. I just solely focus on what I'm good at. But as a team and a unit with trust together, we are able to move vertically instead of linear that we move faster, stronger, better. And when it comes down to it, people say, what is, what is the key? And I said, look, if I, if I really have to break it down, it's trust. Trust is a currency of business. And when I, when I hear Buddy Peterson come up in conversation, that is one of the first things that always pops in my head is trust. Now, trust trust is something you build as a brand over a number of years, right? Yeah. And, and when you think of the word trust, can you ever think of letting somebody down where it was like, it wasn't intentional, but you knew a trust had been broken and it just absolutely just chipped away at your inner soul that you were like, I'm going to make sure something like that never happens again. That's right.
0: That's right. Lots, lots of those situations. Yeah, internally, externally, family, friends, others, and oh, it 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 is. It's something that you can lose in the blink of an eye. You talked about two Mm -hmm. seconds or three seconds, and you know we'll we'll probably hit on that a little bit later. But one of the things that I want to talk about that you just spurred on and made me think of is, you know, the business world today, the post-secondary education world wants to spend all of our time and energy focusing on what you're not good at. Let's take all the sharp edges and knock the edges off of you and try to make you better at something that you suck at. And the reality is, you you know how frustrating that is. You talked about linear and vertical, and you've watched other people, and you've watched other businesses. and, And that's the one thing that kids need to hear, is that, look, you're created with a set of skills that you're good at and you have figured it out. It doesn't take very long, probably seven years old till you figure out really what you're good at in terms of, you know, those things. And let's not worry about some of the things that we're not very good at. Let's focus in and fine tune those skills and those talents that you have, that you're really good at instead of worrying about whether or not, you know, my my typical line that I'm, I, I can barely write. I absolutely can barely put something together on a piece of paper, conjugate verbs, the whole thing, punctuation, all of that. I have no idea what that is. That's why we hired Jamie, right? He mm-hmm. was—he he has a degree in English. He can write any kind of letter. Little wordsmith. But the challenge really becomes is, look, if you're not good at that and I don't want to do that, I want to do this. I want to speak. I want to talk. I want to lead. I want to be in front. I want to do some of those other things. And I think if those folks inside my life hadn't given me opportunities to do that, wh- where where would we be? Where would I be? Where would you be? Had you not recognized what you were talented at and been forced into some situation that had some boss or some organization that said, oh, look, Jeremy, you're not good at this. And we're going to go ahead and work on those things that you're not good at. So if anybody's listening, anybody has any questions about that at all, look, don't focus on what your weaknesses are. Focus on your strengths. Find
1: someone to do what you're weak at. Yeah. I, I, I really get annoyed when people go, oh, you should turn a weakness into a strength. And I was like, impossible. Why? Why? What about turning a strength into a superpower? Preach right. it. Preach. Yeah. And, 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 you know, because there are things that my weaknesses, can I go do them? Yeah, but man, it just drains the ever life out of me. That's why I like culture index. You're very familiar with it. I'm a low D. My, my entire team are high Ds. So for the audience, that means they're very detailed. They follow the rules. They follow the rules. <laughs> they they color inside the lines, mm-hmm. and and I don't. But that's also what makes me good at solving critical problems because I don't. Yeah, I, you're not bound by the box. Not yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't really care about that. As a matter of fact, I I, I feel it. Yeah, rules are yeah. Were made, I don't know what rules made are. Maybe because either. of stupid people, right? Yeah. And and, and so it's like, it, like even when I started in real estate, and you know, in the beginning when you start, and you have to do A through Z very linear, right? You, you develop a client and you order do this, the cash, oh, and yeah. you oh, get yeah. the deal and you got to do the paperwork and then you got to do all the checks and balances. I could do them, but I really didn't want to. You know, I, I, how about I'm really good at developing relationships. I'm really good at solving complex problems. I'm really good at gathering data and, and information and translating that information. How about I focus on that? And so when we built this, where it became vertical, So instead of maybe a 90 day window to go A through Z, now it's a 30 day window to go A through Z because it's been like an accordion scrunched in because we can move vertically while the, while the pendulum's swinging linear Mm -hmm. and, and guess what? Everybody on my team's much happier. That's right. So are you. Yeah. Oh, and you're away and you don't have, they don't have to put up with you. No, yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, so, you're 100% so, right.
0: Yeah. So, so again, I mean, we, we, we come full circle back to that again. I mean, yeah. n- know your strengths. Don't spend a bunch of time worrying about hiring people that look a lot like you. Yeah. You, you heard me say early on about when when I went to work, when Jamie went out and, and found us, and I, I coined the phrase perfectly equipped for a world that no longer exists. Well, I think what happens if we're not careful and we don't look at it and we don't, and, and we move away from the fear based decisions, if we're inside the fear base, we hire people that look just like us. Have the same skills that we do, that we know that we're comfortable with, and lo and behold, guess what happens? Now you've got a team full of people that look just like you. They're all miserable. They're terrible, and the team's terrible, and the performance is terrible. You've got to be able to separate. You got to be able to hire those with high D's or low D's, or under, un, at least understand some fundamental basics about emotional intelligence, about what people are good at, what they're not good at. And if you don't build a team that
1: way, you lose. Yeah, you know, it's it's it, it, you're you're so on point. Is I carry two circles of folks in my world. And all my podcast people hear this. I've got my, what I call my money management circle, which is my wealth advisor, my banker, my CPA, my civil attorney, my defense attorney. Yes, I would have a defense attorney in there. Better to have one and not need one than need one and not have one. Roger that. Right? (laughs) You never know. (laughs) And I don't have to worry. Their, Their job is to grow the money and protect the money that I make. So that way I can keep completely focused on making money. Right? Which... I'm focused on making money by focused on making sure that trust is with the client. We have two core values. I know I sound like a broken record on my podcast. First core value is the value exchange. The client must trust me and want to work with me. And I must trust and want to work with the client because one sided is lopsided, lopsided during the convincing business. We've already talked about that. Can't do it. That is the value exchange. And then the second core value is the value proposition, which is as long as we have trust with each other, your money is always going to be more important than my money. So all I have to do is focus on trust, doing the right thing. The money's going to naturally follow. And I hand it off to these folks that are in charge of protecting it. The other circle that I carry is what I call my, my Fae five. Remember the T-Mobile commercial where you could have five people you could call for free Oh yeah. yeah. before you could call yeah, everybody. Before it was free. Friends and family. Yeah. It was, oh yeah 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 yeah. 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 Sure. I keep five people in there that think very different than me, look very different than me. Their perspectives. Yes. We have some things we agree on, but a lot of things we don't. And when I am trying to problem solve and I am stuck, I go through them because they're going to have a different perspective towards it, right? And, and because of that, it helps me get unstuck, even though most of the time we disagree. Mm-hmm. You know, Janie is one of those oh, for yeah, me. Totally, and totally. by the way, that five, change, like, that five changes based on where I am in life, mm-hmm. right? Doesn't mean that somebody fell off because they're no longer valuable to me. It's just I needed a different perspective at that time to fill that role. And, and so, in, in, in Jamie, <laughs> the thing you know about Jamie that I know about Jamie, you don't have to ask him for his opinion. He's going to give it to you. That's right. And he's not going to deliver it going, okay, let me see if you're, he's going to be like, hey, that's the uh, stupid, uh, yeah. yeah, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And we yeah. go back and forth on stuff. Mm-hmm. And then even on stuff that we agree on, we still try to it's pick still, apart. Yeah, it's we still, still frictional. Of course. Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so you you're, you're right on it. So, I mean, that's. To, to get this knowledge, I know that it's taken me almost 50 years, right? Of, of learning through a lot of mistakes to get there is if there was somebody, let's say, I don't know, a, a young kid getting out of college and he said, man, one day I want to be a COO. Naturally, you've had a couple of decades of learning that, like, what are some things that a future C-suite level person that you could say, hey, listen, if you want to be a COO one day, here's a couple of things that you should try or, or be on fear based naturally is one Absolutely. of them right I, yeah.
0: I, I think the one thing that i would say is people people no yeah. matter what no, no matter what profession you choose no matter what industry yeah. it's all about
1: people okay and so
0: and the quick and the quicker you figure yeah. out that it's about people and not about your own individual core competencies or about you know wh- whichever company you're there what brand you're trying to support whether it's an iphone or a samsung the truth really is it's all about people,
1: and it's all about the speed of trust. So let's let's break that down. So at what point in your life did you learn that people was it?
0: So the first time I was nine years old. You can remember back that far? Yeah, and it's a long time. <laughs> we we rode a dinosaur. But, but I mentioned earlier my dad was a pastor, so we spent a tremendous amount of time yeah. at church. Another church that we went to, my dad was a bivocational pastor at one. We we attended another one, kind of a weird, you know, one was a mission of of the other. So there were two different separate locations. Point point being this, we hired a guy, and there was something about the guy that I didn't understand, but something, you know, my spidey senses or whatever the case may be. And, And it dawned on me at that moment in time that there was something about him that was not right. Five years later, you know, some really super bad things happened. All the things that you read about in the newspaper, all of those things happened. But at that moment, it dawned on me that people and what people's integrity and really what was on the inside of people really probably mattered more than anything else. And and I hadn't thought about that in, you know, 20, 25 years. And I was faced with another situation where someone, you know, we were a big interview panel. We had a whole bunch of people. They were really, really powerful V- very fancy degrees, look great pedigrees, but I also got the same kind of feeling. I, I began to recognize that. Wait a second, here. There's really not a test for the integrity piece. You can't see it on a resume. Culture Index won't prove it to you. The disc profile doesn't show it. But what you have to do is you have to begin to ask those kind of questions, those kind of probing questions, to try to figure out the trust component, and try to figure out what their integrity is. And 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 look the people component, the integrity piece the consistency of that individual is paramount and self-awareness, you know, right right next to that. I mean, people talk about self-awareness, but if you're really unwilling to say what you're not good at and be honest about that, are you really that self-aware? And the answer is no, you're not.
1: Yeah, that was a big one I had to learn was self-awareness. I, my it was always kind of lingering around that I knew I had an issue with my own self-awareness, and then when I went back to TCU to get my MBA, it was really brought to the surface, but it wasn't until it was the second time I had an executive coach. Well, actually, the first time it really came to me is uh, they they give you a 360, and they measure 35 of many core competencies, oh, sure, blah, blah, sure. blah. Sure. And, and one of them that came back, so you get the things that you're like, oh yeah, I knew I was good at this. Oh yeah, I knew I wasn't good at this. I was like, and then you had the third category. He's like, people think I'm good at that? I didn't think I was good at that. And then the, clearly I'm proud of myself, but not everybody else thinks so. And one of them was managing conflict. And so the executive coach I had at the time, Richard Best, great executive coach. He, you know, he, man, he spent months trying to crack the egg to get me to see this. And I said, I just don't get it. People will follow me into the most volatile, situations they will they will they will die for me they will die with me how can i be bad at managing conflict and so one one evening he calls me and says hey meet me up to school i want to do an exercise on the dry erase board right and he goes i'm just going to ask a bunch of questions and i'm going to go really fast and all i want you to do is give one to two word responses and he was going so fast i really wasn't thinking too much about the questions but I was given the the answers, you know. You got to do it with integrity, and by the time he was done writing all these words on the board, he goes, "Look at the board, and what do you see?" And I was like, "Oh, that, that looks that looks ugly." And then instantly it hit me. I was like, "Man, I still, I, tr- I still, I still, I'm not a real emotional guy. You, I can feel it. Yeah, I can feel it right. Yeah, here, right um, now. But there's times where I looked at that and I looked at Richard and I said." is that what my wife and daughter sees? Oh, yeah. And I'm just going to leave that one there because... Good enough. From there, I was like, I I, I, I I, don't want that. Right. But I still didn't have the right tools yet and all the other things that go on in life, blah, blah, blah. And then in 2019, I took on another executive coach, Tony Ford. he was been a guest on the show. And Tony helped me address the self-awareness and get better at it. And you know what? When people say... Hey, what's the one thing you're always working on at trying to get better? You know, like when when Buddy and I are talking about, you know, only focus on your strengths, don't care about your weaknesses. Look, there's there's some of these you have to cultivate to get better, mainly because you want people to tolerate you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 so if somebody said, hey, which of your weaknesses are are ones that you still struggle with? Is mine is, is hands down. I go self awareness. i I'm always just trying to get a little bit better at that because what I never want to do. Is let somebody in the room feel inadequate because of something I said that the intention of my words is not what they're going to judge me on, but the results of how they're received is how they get That's judged. That's right. Right. And, and so I was like, yeah. So self awareness was 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 a huge one. And then and I still work on it. And and guess what? I still fell at it. Of course. Or fell at it all the time, right? But you're aware. Yeah. Aware,
0: yeah. One one of the things that that I, I think about, I heard someone say, is we want other people to judge us by our intent, but we want to judge everyone else by their results. Mm-hmm. And and that that is, I mean, it's difficult. It is extremely difficult. Yeah. yeah. And I think all of us, the the longer you live. Um, the, the more you look in the mirror, the man in the mirror, the, the more you realize you're, people don't judge you for your intents. You want them to. You wish they would, but they don't. And that's really when that self-awareness piece comes out. And look, I, I I can totally appreciate that. I, I had that happen just a couple of days ago. And it's super, super poignant, super, super painful be, because I wanted them. You know, my, my intention was something else, but my results Weren't pure, weren't noble, weren't yeah. honorable, weren't even close to any of those words. And as a matter of fact, they walked away thinking, ugh.
1: And so, I'm going to have to go and do that. Yeah. But, ugh, painful. So, so when those, when those painful situations happen, and you being a leader, right, where something you didn't intend, you intended it to be a right, but it ended up being a wrong, what do you go do to right that wrong? You walk in, you put your
0: arm around them and say, I am sorry. Will you forgive me? No buts, no conditional statements, none of that. It's, look, I screwed it up. Like you read about, I'm sorry. And sometimes it comes with emotion. Sometimes people see you become vulnerable. Sometimes you cry in front of public. There's there's probably nothing more humbling than being on, you know, like I shared with you about the Jamie thing. That, and that's not just it. I mean, it's happened other times you know you're you're on a podcast or you're on a town hall in front of 2000 people and and you get emotional and you and you make a mistake or or you take ownership of what you've done and you tear up interestingly enough most people will give you grace and most people would be more than happy to go ahead and extend that grace to you and forgive you and kind of move forward in the relationship but if you don't do it you've lost if you're unwilling to say i am sorry or if you're you know we can all we us old guys can talk about our wives How many times have you made a mistake and said, but no one full well that, you know, as soon as the but comes out of your mouth, you know, it's run and you got to start all the way up and begin. So, so we're back to the integrity. We're back to the trust and I am sorry. And I think the other, the other thing that goes along with that is, will you help me? Will you help me get better? Will you help me recognize this? Will you be willing to share that with me, even though it's uncomfortable? Will you be willing to tell me when I'm stepping across the line or when I do something stupid?
1: What do, you, what do you think it is about some leaders that 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 won't do that?
0: Look, it's it's difficult to, to try to speculate. I, I think part of it is is they haven't had enough road rash. I mean, you haven't been kicked hard enough to recognize that this world is all about the relationships that you have. And sometimes we let our arrogance get in the way, or we've been super successful before, and it's it's just pride before the fall.
1: Man, that's you know I one of the things that I've I've really enjoyed about doing this show is when you get folks in there, especially you know especially leaders like yourself. You're you're so busy doing the leader role that rarely rarely does somebody sit you down and go, "Well, hey, where's all this come from?" and and I haven't had a single person that has sat in your chair. That hasn't just literally opened up the kimono and shared where even people that thought they knew them extremely well would call them afterwards and go, I've known you for 20 years and had no idea. And, and, and that's, that's, that's one of the magical things about the show, but it's also is, it's not just the show's not just driven about work success, right? I mean, it's about personal success and you're very passionate about a number of things, right? Outside of the work. Let's talk about those. What are, what are a couple of these things that you're super passionate about? I'm
0: super passionate about orphans. My wife and I have been married a long time. We, we had a very difficult time getting pregnant and having children. And during the course of that time, r- really, we became focused on the adoption principle. Well, the adoption principle allowed us and kind of led us into this international adoption and, and begin to really understand about orphans. Mm-hmm. And so my bride was heavily involved in Chinese adoption. Obviously, I have two kids. I have a, a son and a daughter that are Chinese adopted. But even beyond that, I've got, you know, several, several young boys that I sponsor in um, Africa that are ravaged from AIDS and they're orphans. And and really that that's that's our passion. One of the things that I tease people about if you spend much time around Wendy and I, you're gonna wind up adopting a kid because that's generally what we get back to and talk about. So that's one thing that I'm super passionate about. The other would be, I, I love Habitat for Humanity for a couple of reasons. One, it's not a handout, it's a hand up. And I think so many times we as business leaders or leaders or, or you know just fluent Americans think that everything we do has to be a charity or a handout. And the reality is, the people that qualify to do the things that you have to do to get a house for Habitat, put in a tremendous amount of sweat equity. They put in a tremendous amount of time, energy, and effort. And they are so much better for it. I mean, if you take a look at the mortgage, I don't even know what the statistics are about how many people default on their loan. The defaults for those that qualify for Habitat for Humanity, significantly less than the general population. Fantastic organization. I encourage anybody. Trinity Habitat for Humanity in Fort Worth, fantastic. Outstanding.
1: And, and especially in today's day and age, in a very static real estate market, right? Where affordable housing is, man, it's it's hard. I, I make the jokes of you can't even buy a dope house for 150000 And if you do, that's because it's coming with a dope dealer. That's right. right? That's and, right. I mean, there's just so many, it, it's very static. So, and, and people have to have a place to live, right? So I record these in bulk. And so I'll record 10 to 12 of these episodes all, all together over two days. And hence all the shirts out there. I changed shirts in between so people don't think I only have one shirt. And But someone I have a big man crush on that I had him in here yesterday is Chris Powers from Fort Capital. Here's a guy that, you know, went to TCU at 17 in his freshman year, bought his first asset for 100000 And now 16 years later, he has just shy of half a billion in assets, Right. And, and, and I'm a big fan of his podcast. I listened to his podcast and he was talking about on one of his podcasts. I, I think it was the one with Nick, him and Nick Huber, because it's been in the last week I, I listened to it as he was talking about, you know, Hey, this, this, this housing situation is, is, is real. Right. And everybody agrees that it's real, but nobody wants it next to them. Right. Nobody mm-hmm. wants the affordable housing or the multifamily or any of this. All but, of those. Yep. But what do you do when you have people, that are flocking here. And I mean, prior to the pandemic, we expected to grow Dallas-Fort Worth's metroplex population from 2020 to 2030 by a million people. I think the data shows now that we're going to hit that number by 2026. Uh-oh. Yeah, it is it's there it's I I, I it's, yeah, I could do a whole podcast on just that alone and what migration is. But point being is he said something really interesting is he was talking about he's he's heavily on Twitter and actually I've learned from him of like Twitter, because I've got a person that's controlled my social media and my presence sure, on social sure. media. But when I started learning, because part of my view on social media was it's just very one directional, but he used to utilize Twitter to become dialogue. And I was just, you know, here's a guy that's a CEO of a company with half a billion in assets that he grew. And I was like, how do you have the time to do this? And he's like, man, this is a part of how I communicate and touch other people, blah, blah, blah. But on one of them, he said, yeah, I sent a tweet and I meant to say hostile. I spelled it wrong. Hostile. But he said, you know, even taking on the outskirts of town a, you know, a, a former warehouse or or industrial area and then, you know, creating it where it could definitely have the septic, the water, the HVAC and all that and almost having like bunk beds and lockers for people that were in transit. And, I, you know, whether that would be a good idea or, or not, I, I don't know. I haven't put as much thought into it, but it made me sit there and think is... Hey, there really are people that need a place to put their head in the bed. And if, and if they can't afford a house or even try to compete, for example, three weeks ago, we had one, we listed, we priced it appropriately. We priced it right at 225. In 48 hours, we had 35 offers. Wow. Offers up to $50,000 over list that, There's no way to appraise it that that. they're going to have to do a waiver appraisal. They're going to have to come to the table with 50 grand, so forth. And, and you think this is a real, this is a real problem because if somebody doesn't have the, the, you know, PFS, the, you know, personal financial statement that has a net worth or doesn't have the income or doesn't have the credit score and all that, that needs a place to go buy. How to, how to, how do they compete with that? And then on top of that is like you are saying is they're getting a traditional mortgage and because of the ambiguity in the current economic environment we're living in could absolutely have the rug pulled out from underneath them and then they can't make a payment on a house they just purchased so this this habitat for humanity is is really really intriguing so how how does that work how does how does habitat for humanity for the audience cuz i don't know that i know enough about it
0: so so interestingly enough I, I mean what habitat's done is they've they've found areas in the community and and they Really, it was kind of founded based on the fact, based on one, one guiding principle. Housing, homes, stability creates opportunities for growth. And they've proven the math time and time and time again. And so what happens is you you have to apply during that application process. You have to go through, I think it's a couple hundred hours of sweat equity. You have to go through multiple classes on personal finance. You have to have had a job or in a job for longer than X amount, some, some level of time. And those qualifications begin to, as they go through the weeding process. I mean, you you may make one of the hurdles, but if you're unwilling to put in the 200 hours of, of time of sweat equity, of learning personal finance, of learning what it, what it means to keep up your home. And then once you qualify and pass that hurdle, then you've got to work on your house. And so as all the volunteers come and kind of work through that, you're right in the middle of it. You're, you're swinging a hammer. You're setting trusses. You're going through all of, all of that. When that part's over with, then you go through the home maintenance piece, and then you wind up qualifying for your mortgage, and you get your mortgage, and you, you wind up with your home. And it is the most incredible thing to interview and to spend time with those single moms, single dads, whole house full of kids, you know, folks from all walks of life, from all over the world, that have come to Fort Worth or, you know, happen to be here. And then when you interview them, when it's over with, and then you see them five years from the time that they get their home without fail, every single one of those children and the individual has increased their, whether it's net worth or their status or their success or their comfort or their family origin or their strength, tenfold, twentyfold. It's incredible. I mean, it it is an amazing thing to watch.
1: So we've talked about your passion for orphans, your passion for Habitat for Humanity. you got a third one. I do. I do. Let's talk about that one.
0: It's it's the PEP program. It's called the Prison Entrepreneurial Program. And we we got involved in it in our oil field services business. There are several um, incarcerated people that... During the rehabilitation process, they recognized that these folks were entrepreneurs. Obviously, dope dealers are pretty entrepreneurial. <laughs> you know, if, if if you can kind of take a look, They're at great at that, sales. That's too. right. Absolutely, <laughs> no, no question about it. So, r- really, what happened is is they recognized. You know, and we go back to the same thing. That, you know, that it was a three second decision, and they made the wrong decision. Three seconds. One thousand one. One thousand two. One thousand three. They made the wrong decision. They find themselves either on the wrong end of a gun or in in incarcerated for something else. And so what this organization has done is I said, look, we can take these folks that are incarcerated. We can provide them with educational background on understanding what a typical entrepreneur would do. Give them the tools and techniques and let them come up with their own business and try to find micro for private equity and some of the other folks to finance them, even while they're continuing to work their way through to get out of prison. And then when they're done, when they come out of prison they've provided a halfway house or an opportunity for them to kind of meet and continue to grow so that they can stay outside of, of the prison piece and and these folks have gone through a litany of presentations they have to develop a business they have to present it to business leaders they have to get financing for it have to understand the ins and the outs of all of it and we've hired i, I think 13 to 15 of those guys they've came into our organization they've done an outstanding job we've We've grown them, we've stretched them, we've we've shipped them out. We've had a couple that come in and become super service supervisors within 18, 19 months. And look, I, I I highly recommend that. Granted, look, there are some consequences. Not all of them work. They're a lot like the rest of us. But the truth really is, is, it is it's an organization. It's an opportunity to give someone a second chance. It's an opportunity to watch people who have made a three-second poor decision to get to convert on a on on a line, on a path that will change not only their lives, but their kids' lives and you know, generational generational opportunities. So yes, PEP, big plug out for PEP.
1: Yeah. And I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of that mm. program. And when people learned of my background in law enforcement, I was I was a detective for seven years. And then I spent two years working undercover with the feds in human trafficking. Needless to say is people get real confused when I say I'm a supporter of this program and other programs like it. And they were like, didn't you maybe put a lot of those folks there? Yeah, because that was my job. That's right. Right? I mean, listen, you meet the elements of the offense. My job is not to judge you as a person. My job is to investigate it. My job is to put a case together. It goes to the DA's office. The DA's office does their job. Then it goes to a judge and jury and all this, right? It's It's not my job to judge anybody as an individual, you know? And, and look, I, I've, man, I have sat in rooms this size doing interrogations of, man, it had to have been hundreds of suspects, whether it was from a stolen Huffy to serial rapists. You, you need to yeah. tell the audience what yeah. a Huffy is. Oh yeah, it's an old bicycle. Back in your and I day. I don't, don't have a, ban- a banana seat. I had a banana seat. <laughs> <laughs> Made it a huffy. Oh yeah. And, right. and, and and if it was your sisters, I had the little, oh, yeah, little the sparkly things that held, things yep, yep, hung off the, the handlebars. handlebars. <laughs> and, That's uh, right. That's right. And 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 even in human trafficking. Like I've I've been responsible for putting some people away for life. Right? Because that was my job. And uh, and where there are times where I was sitting there in the room with someone and I was like, they had done they committed a crime and they knew this is like you said. Man, bad decision making, whatnot, you know, but I was like, and, and it was actually many a times it was not too hard to get a confession. I'm like, do you want to, do you want, when the judge decides, I was like, cause look, this thing's going to court. Like whether you talk to me or not, this thing's, I'll prosecute. I'm sending this case to the prosecution, but at some point on your confession that if you write right now, do you want the judge and jury to judge you based on the crime or judge based on if you could turn back the hands of time knowing what you know now. Kind of like the same situation I sure, was in whenever sure. I'd make When you were in mistake. trouble. Right. That's right. And it, you'd be surprised. I would just slide, it would a lot of times look like a yellow pad like that one, right over, and man, they just start riding. And so, but people are like, okay, Span, so you support this, put your money where your mouth is, right? Okay. So this June 1st, I've had a restaurant over in Arlington, right across the street from UTA, pizza and craft beer. So pizza and beer, 45,000 college kids, marine proof. And it's coming up on 10 years. Needless to say, the last 12 months have been really, really difficult. We went from 2019 of doing $1.2 million in sales. It's very small. You know, it's not a big operation. Mm-hmm. 1.2 is pretty respectable for what it does. High margins because we're very lean. We work very good. And then in 2020, we barely broke 700,000. My general manager is a guy named Jeremy Washburn, and he came to work for us several years ago on his first day out of prison. that a boy? Washing dishes. did seven years, comes says, "Need a job, starts off a dishwasher, works his way up to become a manager, and then eventually the general manager to where now as we navigate through the complexity of this ppp we are in the process of making him the owner so like you said entrepreneurial he he paid his debt to society absolutely and then people are like well you being a retired police officer how can you how can you trust this guy how could you do that or Do you really, or do you really trust this person? I says, okay, well, let's go back to March of 2020. When the world was shutting down, and this wasn't a run on the bank or anything else like that. It was, I may need cash. Cash may be the sole reason how I keep the doors open over the next 90 to 120 days. Mm -hmm. And it was due where we had a lot of bills that were getting ready. And I was like, I'll deal with paying the bill collectors and the tax man and all that other stuff. I called my banker. I said, consolidate all my money to one account. I need to come get it. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not planning on closing the doors. This is more of an operational thing. So what I did is I communicated with the banker instead of just going and doing it. So that way he didn't get fear by going, why are you doing this? Right. I've communicated. This is what my objective is. Now I'm still in Colorado because I got my house in Colorado. there, right? And I'm still in Colorado. So he gets it and he says, okay, I need 48 hours. This is the bank that we send that large amount of cash to when people need to go withdraw it, and I said great. So then I picked a phone, I called Jeremy, and I said, look, because the world shut down starting that Wednesday, and this was on Tuesday. I saw it come in the previous week. Then watching things on Monday, on that Tuesday, I was like, I need to start making critical decisions. And so I called Jeremy that Tuesday. I said, on Thursday, go to XYZ Bank at XYZ you're, you're get a sack full of money. Right, they're going to give you, and I think it was like. I'm trying to remember. It could have been 35 dollars, but it was a significant amount of cash. Sure, sure. And he goes, "Okay, do you want me to take it to the restaurant, and put it in a safe?" I said, "Hell no! Somebody will break in yeah, the middle it in of the night." And steal it. I said, Dude. "I was like, you, you told me you have a safe at your house, right?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Take it and put it there." And he says, "Okay." And that cash, actually, it was kind of funny. Is that cash we finally just ran out of a year ago, where we've had to fill the gaps, right? So fast forward a couple months later. Naturally, Jeremy's under an incredible amount of stress. He, he's he. This is a meritocracy where he has earned his way to become an owner in this, and I am more than happy to completely one hundred percent seller finance him to to own the business. And so, but going through all these trials and tribulations and everything, and I know he's dealing with a lot of stress. I think it was like May or June. Man, he was really upset. And and I said, "What's going on?" He goes, "Man." I trust you with my entire existence and my family, but I'm not sure you trust me. And I went, "What, really?" <laughs> and he goes, "And he goes, no, man, I'm not. I'm, I'm not confident that you really trust me." And I said, "Well, Jeremy, let me ask you something." I said, "Did you do seven years in prison?" And He goes, "Yeah." I said, "Am I a retired police officer?" And he goes, "Yeah." And when the world ended, I had you go to the bank and pull out a significant amount of money. And he goes, "Yeah." I said, "Whose money is that?" He goes, it's "Your money." I said, whose business is it?" He goes, "Your business." And I said, "Whose safe was it in?" And he goes, "Mine." You're right. You trust me. (laughs) And so now here it is going away because if you have someone, and it hasn't been an easy journey for Jeremy, right? Oh, no. You know, especially navigating just the last 12 months of everything. And then on top of that, in February, we hit the freeze, which Mm -hmm. shuts us down in the worst possible time. But I just, I look at him and just tell him, man, I'm proud of you and I trust you and you're going to be okay. Look, we get the next second round of PPP, all we need to do is make it to August. And if we make it to August, we're fine. This is about focusing on making it to August. It's not about anything else. Just that's the goal. But we we the goal, the macro goal is make it to August because in August, what we are anticipating is that UTA will – because a significant portion of our clientele is coming from sure, you know sure. the school. So we're hoping that they will have Open more students back. back, back up. And oh, yeah. Things will be great. Many restaurants have closed down. Because of the pandemic, we're going to have less competition. It's going to be gangbusters. It should be good. And I said, so that's the macro goal. The micro goal is just take it a day at a time, sometimes just maybe lunch to dinner and dinner to close, you know, sometimes hour by hour. I said, you're going to be fine. And in the amount of trust and love, this guy, like every time we get off the phone, he's like, man, I love you. And I was like, I love you too, brother. You know, and I don't just say that as words as I do because watching him, because I, I afforded him the opportunity, but he's the one that created the ability to seize that opportunity. That's right. And so when people come up and say, well, once you go to prison, you're a convict forever. Maybe that's a label some people put on you. But if you accept that as your reality, that's what you did. Mm. Because you have the opportunity to change your path. It's not going to be easy. It's going to require a lot of work. And trust me, all the things that made it easy to make bad decisions when you went to prison, those are still there. That's right. That's right. Every single day. That's right. And now I just watch him and it, it, he's got it. He outpunted his coverage. He's like me, man. His wife is a total beautiful woman that I'm like, the math doesn't add up on this. He's got kids, he's got family yeah, yeah. and how he's been able to support his family. And he doesn't have to worry about walking in and doing a job interview somewhere to go, Oh, well, we see this on your resume or your application. Yeah, yeah. He gets to be a part of, you know, enjoying his destination going forward. So, Man, I, I let so. One last thing I I, I want to ask before we kind of wrap things up is, with with Habitat for Humanity, orphans and and you know this prison entrepreneur program, that you have a passion for that, but but why? Where does that come from? Like what what is it? What is it inside your soul that you, you're just like, this is this is something I have to do because not only is there's audience that's listening right now to go, man, that sounds like a lot of work. And a lot of, you know, you know, like insecurities and things that go into that. What what was it for you?
0: Wow. The the truth is, you know, we talk about those three second decisions. I, I was forced. I, I was fortunate enough, by the grace of God, to the decisions that I made. The three second mistakes that I made didn't land me in prison. I've been given some unique gifts and skills. I have been adopted. I I, I understand what forgiveness looks like, and I understand what the future really can be. And I don't have any other, I don't don't know what else to say. Leading men, loving men, loving families, providing opportunities for people to grow, to become better than what they are, is exactly what I was created to do. And it's exactly what's been shown through me. And that's it.
1: So just so the audience hears right, you yourself are adopted.
0: No, no, no. I'm not adopted. I've been adopted. So so when you think about this week, yeah. th- th- this week is the Holy Week, right? Yeah. So you think about the adoption of the blood of Christ Okay. through that part of it.
1: Right. That's right, what right, I mean right. when I
0: talk about adoption. That, that's really the ultimate yeah. adoption story. Yeah. yeah. The global gospel story is about adoption.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that's it. And no, I'm not adopted. Okay. I wish my, my my parents wish I was probably.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think my parents wanted to put me up for adoption. That's right. As a matter of fact, right. when I walked in the door, in 1991, with a recruiter, it said, "Hey, Dad, I'm ready to go in the Marines." And he said, that "I can't sign till I'm 18." My dad's old Vietnam vet. He, he says, "Yeah, he let me did, have he, that pencil." He, I'll show he, you. He, so you have to sign for me. He was like, "Where is that's there right, a, do, is right. there any initials that's I missed?" And then right. off it you know off it went. That's but, right. That's right. Man, so you have probably forgotten more than what most people will go learn in being in the role that you serve in now, but going back to 20 year old self, right? I know. And, and I asked this at the end of every one of these, I know there's a million things you'd want to grab yourself by the ears and be like, Hey, do this or don't yeah. do that. There's, there's all these things. Would we listen or not? But if there was one thing you could tell 20 year old self that you knew 20 year old self, you said, listen, you don't have to listen to the other 99 things, but this one out of the hundred, This is the one you have to listen to and you have to absolutely do or don't do. What would you tell
0: 20-year-old buddy? Three seconds will change your life. Every decision you make, three seconds will change your life.
1: And we basically spent this entire episode talking about that, right? And that is, man, So, (laughs) you know what I love about doing this is I haven't had anybody give me the same answer to that question. You figure it's the law of numbers. Somebody's going to eventually have some been similar and so forth, but it's really exciting because people actually, you know that's coming from deep in, right? They're not just giving a cliche answer. So people want to learn more about FTS. They want to learn more about you. They want to learn more about these nonprofits. How do, how do they find you? Where, where do I think the
0: easiest way is to reach out to our, our website at FTSI.com. And and we can go that way on all the social media platforms. However, I'm not going to go through and spit out all the handles because you know an old guy like me, I can barely remember. (laughs) But my last name is Peterson, P E T E R S E N, not S O N. So that's and and there's not a lot of buddies, so it's pretty easy to find.
1: So it's kind of like the email that you sent me, and you went you spelled my name wrong, and I took a screenshot, sent it back to you. I was like, this one's not on me. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot to send that to Jamie, by the way.
0: But you know what's really funny (laughs) is you got bounced back, but all those emails are there. But yeah, I, I look at them on that account. Maybe they realize it.
1: Pe- maybe they just made yeah, like an like, extra uh, augmented oh, yeah. email of like, people are going to spell this wrong and they're going to, they're going to, yeah. I don't know. That's super, too, super interesting. Super that interesting. is, that is funny. Well, buddy, I I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming in here. And for those of y'all that r- might be on the road listening to this episode and miss where to connect with buddy, you can always go to myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experienced with an ED. Click on podcast, click on Buddy Peterson's episode, click the read more, and you will find more. Thank you for coming in, buddy. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, this is great, man. Yeah.